Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the chat bus. The podcast mini-series where we speak with fellow travellers through the films of the world's greatest animation studio, Studio Ghibli. I'm Michael Leader, and I've seen the lot of them. And I'm Jake Cunningham, and I'm ready to be transported. So join us on our quest into the glorious world of Ghibli. Jake, one more journey on the chat bus. Another round trip. Let's do it. You know, I've I've paid my ticket. I've taken my travel sickness tablets. I'll I'll, I'll ride this bus for as long as I can, uh, and this is this is one more one more journey out. And with every episode, the the chat bus is gaining an extra deck. <laughs> <laughs> now it's a quadruple decker chat bus. <laughs> yeah, if, if anyone but... uh, heard last week's episode and heard about the horrifying image of the double decker cat bus. <laughs> Uh, please please do send us more fan art about that we want to see it we want our we never want to sleep again (laughs) yeah just tape it to the inside of some sunglasses so we can never go without a second of seeing the double decker chat bus the double decker cat bus even but jake we have one more conversation ready to go this week we're speaking with beck hill Yes, so lovely to have Beck inside the walls of the Ghibliotech and talking about such a wide variety of stuff. Um, I, I say this every week, but getting people in who aren't just film nerds like us, who actually you know go out and make amazing art and do amazing things and approach Ghibli in such a different way is so exciting. That's why we love having these conversations. And and Beck's a comedian. You might have seen her on like Jonathan Ross's show or clips of her on YouTube with her viral flip chart videos, which are amazing, so inventive. And there's an inventiveness in her comedy that comes from a passion for arts and crafts, which you can now see in her CITV show, Make Away, Take Away, which kind of following in the footsteps of the legends like Neil Buchanan and Art Attack, we've now got Beck Hill, who is now the, the CITV bastion for all great arts and crafts. And so talking to her about her experiences with Ghibli and that the crossover of, kind of making art with a kid's focus and how we see that in the films. Just just brilliant. What a lovely chat. Absolutely. So she's such a sort of wide ranging talent 
uh, I, I love that her bio and her website is comedian presenter dork and there are some dorky twists and turns throughout our conversation but also one of the many hats that beck wears is also a storyteller she's a writer she's an author she's writing the series of horror books for children called horror heights the new entry in that series is out literally this week um it's called now live screaming and it's a sort of black mirror for kids uh looking at the world of streaming yeah, absolutely worth checking out those for anyone who, when they were young, uh, read the Goosebumps books. You'd get a kick out of Horror Heights. <laughs> so absolutely check those out. But yeah, go and go and check out Beck's websites. Um, watch what she's up to. So much fun to talk to her about Ghibli and so much more as well, as well as an amazing adventure uh, to Tokyo that was thoroughly underprepared for. <laughs> <laughs> well, without further ado, let's hear from our guest this week, Beck Hill. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. It is lovely to swing open the doors of the Ghibliotech to Beck Hill and welcome her in to... I don't know, the, the kind of the chairs and tables that are tucked in between the shelves of all of the films in our lovely library. Beck, welcome to the show. Oh, hi. I, uh, I feel silly now for misunderstanding the, the pun and just assuming this was a, a, a disco, a Ghibli-themed disco. I've, I've brought my, my flares. I'm wearing flares. I've got like a, a disco ball-themed uh, uh, T-shirt on. It's sparkling. Um, I'm... I've got roller skates. I don't know what I was thinking. This is embarrassing. <laughs> Completely overdressed for this library. Yeah, considering this is a virtual record and we're just at home, it's an impressive get-up. Yeah, yeah. Um, I should have realised. No one calls them discotheques these days. I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed. Oh, well, maybe, maybe this is the first step in bringing that back. Um, but so... 
the Ghibli, Ghibli Tech has been about um, kind of my journey going from never seeing any Studio Ghibli films to being introduced to them. And now we're kind of learning about how lots of other people have experienced Ghibli's work across their lives and how it interacts with what they've gone on to do. Um, so let's go right back to the start. Um, what was what was the first Studio Ghibli film that you saw and what did you make of it? So I didn't realize it was uh, Studio Ghibli at the time. Um, my family were living in Hong Kong until I was about four. And when we moved uh, back to Australia, they had like all of our VHS tapes were ones that they had taped in Hong Kong. So they've all got like Cantonese subtitles and stuff. And uh, one was for Laputa and uh, the other one was Norska and I, I don't remember the first time I watched them. I just remember them like being in my psyche. I'm sure there's films that, that you have as well where you're just like, oh, yeah, yeah. I don't ever not – I don't recall the first time because I was so young. Um, so I, I just remember it really sticking heavily in my head and uh, it sort of, I don't know, being part of my psyche, just these, these images of these uh, – different frames and I think I was too young to even understand the storylines at the time but I just remember uh just finding these um protagonists so fascinating uh, especially like when you're a kid you know everyone loves the idea of having a little glider and a little pet tato <laughs> little pet fox thing that looks like uh I've forgotten the, uh, the creature's name. It looks like it looks exactly like one of the Pokemon. Well, one of the Pokemon looks exactly like like Tato from Noshka. Uh, and um, uh, I know there'll be people listening like, it's this Pokemon. They'll be getting really angry right now. And I'm sorry. You can send your complaints to at Ghibliotech. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and of course, the, uh, uh, the pendant, the um, pendant with the, the stone that, uh, you know, creates flight. I think uh, those things just stuck in my head from a really young age. And it wasn't until, mm. weirdly, uh, my primary school, so they must have been shown on TV at some point in, in Hong Kong for my parents to take them. And uh, then when I was in primary school back in Australia, uh, our the language we learnt in primary school was Japanese because Australia is a lot closer to... to um, uh, East Asia than than you guys so I, it was like our French and uh, I remember our Japanese teacher showed us uh, my neighbor Totoro that uh, occasionally we get to watch that we'd all seen it like maybe once a year since you know we were started primary school the way to to our final year and we were all all loved it and um, it took me a long time to realize that they're from the same from the same studio and I think that was when probably about aged 11 or 12 was when I think I learned that they're all related and it was like, and then, yeah, after that, I was like, okay, let's, let's get ourselves a, a box set somewhere. <laughs> That's so cool to hear. Cause, um, you know, growing up in the UK and probably in the U S as well, it's very hard not to see them as this library, this totemic body of work by these Japanese masters of animation. And it's so cool to speak to people from a lot of European countries are the same, where this stuff's just on telly, this stuff is in rotation. Mm. Um, and that VHS shelf where you had Laputa and Naushka, 
what else was on that shelf? So what was that in the mix with when you were growing up? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, they're all things that my parents taped. So what would it have been? Labyrinth was one of them. Jim Great. Henson's Labyrinth. Uh, oh, what else? I'm trying to, I'm just now trying to remember all of my favourite films as a kid that had Cantonese subtitles. Uh, Never Ending Story, uh, Princess Bride. Um, uh, oh, Indiana Jones, Star Wars, mm. the, obviously, um, the, ah, oh, the ones that everyone knows. <laughs> yeah, that's really the main the, ones. The, yeah. You can, re, like, between the live action and the animation, there are so many similarities between the stuff that Jim Henson would have been, like, never-ending story, and some of the visuals that you would have been encountering there would have really crossed over to animation, and you can even see links to, like, a spirited away in, in the, the dragon and the creature in never-ending yeah, story. Luck, yeah, so, the luck dragon. And um, so I suppose was was fantasy stuff something you were kind of, maybe not consciously but you were you were really kind of into at that time yeah well I think I have to uh credit that to my parents my parents very much uh um very much into their fantasy my mum was really into prog rock so I remember she had all these yes albums with uh with all that um stunning like sort of uh I can't remember the term for it's not surrealist but that sort of sci-fi art there is a very specific term for it um it looks almost uh like liquid uh, it's mm -hmm. always sort of these beautiful space themes and everything um uh, a lot of space listeners stuff would have well. missed <laughs> listeners wouldn't have seen it but michael there in the background was looking over his shoulder to see if he could quietly go and get his yes albums out of oh, his wow. shelf oh, okay. and proudly <laughs> that's amazing Look can save that for after we've recorded. Yeah. yeah. Um, I feel like Beck, maybe your, Beck, your mum and Michael, your music case would probably cross, cross over. Oh, absolutely. The thing is, is like, my, I think when I hit my late teens, I realised like, my mum's actually really cool. Like, she's so cool. She doesn't think she is. But she's like, anything that anyone, anytime I meet someone with a really int like interesting passion or something like that, it'll normally lead back to me going, oh, yeah, because my mum, like, anything that is interesting about me usually goes back to my mum or my dad and me going, like, oh, geez, I'm so lucky I had... I mean, at the time, I thought they were super nerdy. My my family were actually in a medieval reenactment society where, back in Australia um, until I was about... I think I was about 13 when uh, when we stopped going. And um, which, if anyone is listening, going, oh, that, uh, you know, that's not that strange. I mean, bear in mind, this is a country that did not experience white medieval times. So to reenact them is, is a strange thing. Uh, you know, you would have these, they'd meet up every couple of months and have a feast in a, in a community hall and all the uh, uh, lights would be off. You'd have all candlelit dinners and stuff and proper feasts. And it was all volunteers. They'd all, you know you know work the kitchens and make these massive feasts and you'd play these games that people would research my dad did storytelling so he learned a lot of the like a thousand and one arabian nights stuff and uh there'd be uh people who had um obviously learnt uh, the lute and, and other sort of medieval instruments so they, they would play music and like as a kid it was it was cool. I I think I took it, I definitely took it for granted. I think I saw it in the same way. Like some kids grow up in like church families. They go to church like every Sunday and that's really normal for them. And for me, it was like, oh yeah, you know, when you're like, parents make you a, 
tunic at home and you <laughs> don that and <laughs> go and have dinner without electricity with a bunch of other adults dressed up. You know how everyone does that? No? Okay. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it was very, like, my, my they were very much into their, a lot of the fantasy, fantasy stuff sort of linked in with that as well. My dad's a big Tolkien fan. So, yeah. yeah. Well, thinking of those those two Ghiblis that they taped off the TV, Naushka and Castle in the Sky, there's so much in them that feels rooted in kind of European medieval fantasy stories as well. So yeah. it's not really a coincidence that they would have kind of gravitated towards those stories, even though they're being told by filmmakers on the other side of the world. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And I mean, a lot of Ghibli is sort of based on European stuff as well, isn't it? Like mm. Kiki's Delivery Service is somewhere in Europe and uh, The Cat Returns, I think, as well. How's Moving Cast? I mean, a lot of it is very sort of, uh, yeah, clearly um, influenced by at least European culture, folk folklore, or, or in some cases, uh, very Tolkien-esque. Mm. No, it's something that we love Absolutely. talking about, which is that, that dialogue between the sort of, Japanese cultural interests and then European output because there are some films in the Ghibli library that are, are adapted from English novels that are completely out of print when the film comes out so when Marnie was there was adapted from an English novel and that you couldn't buy that anywhere in the UK when that oh, wow. came out. but in Japan somehow that had some sort of cachet with the filmmakers yeah. but yeah Miyazaki said that for many years through the years where he was making Naushka and Castle in the Sky um Ursula Le Guin's novels, Earthsea novels, were on his bedside table. So he was drawing right, so much yeah. influence from English language fantasy. So yeah, it's not a massive jump from there to prog rock album covers. And the no, that. no. <laughs> it's not that random. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'd love to ask you, Beck, about the sense that the way you said that Japanese was uh, your equivalent of French at school. So a, a lot of this stuff was just what you were learning on a daily basis or seeing at school. At what point then did Ghibli become Ghibli in your mind? You said for so so long they were just films you were watching year in, year out. Yeah, I think uh, probably in my mid to late teens, I, probably around the time that I was using the internet a lot more. Uh, I mean, I remember using chat rooms and forums and stuff when I was about 12 years old when we first got dial-up. And uh, by that, I mean you would send a message and maybe a couple of hours later you would see a response. <laughs> And so I think that was when I started connecting with other people who had seen or heard of these films. Because for a long time, uh, it felt like it—it it felt like this sort of special thing that only my family knew about. Uh, even though we had um, my neighbor Totoro in my uh, in my primary school, all the, all the other films, like none of the other kids sort of had heard of them or, or knew what they were, and it felt like this sort of. I don't know, this treasure, this hidden treasure. And occasionally you would end up chatting to someone who knew about the treasure and you'd be like, <gasps> and then you'd be like, Wah! it was just exciting. But at the same time, it still felt special. And uh, I mean, that's not to say I don't want other people to know about it, but it is an interesting feeling when you go, oh, it's not, it's not just me and my family. It, it is, uh, I, I mean, it's huge. It has its own museum. So uh, it was it was a moment, I think, when the world started opening up for me with the introduction of the internet. And, uh, yeah, mainly that, uh, getting old enough to start. I mean, we still only had five TV channels when I moved over here when I was 21. So Australia was still quite far behind. But one of our channels was SBS, which is a, 
uh, has a lot of foreign language stuff on it and I was probably getting it to an age where I was more adventurous in terms of what I was watching because I think a lot of us tend to just watch whatever's on mainstream television mm. uh, or what was just put in front of us and I sort of as I started to learn more about myself and and find my tastes and everything I would just be like oh that sounds interesting I'll watch that I will say though I went from I remember watching several uh, Ghibli films and then and then watching Ghost in the Shell Mm -hmm. it's probably my mid-teens and I I remember expecting it to be a bit because Ghibli for so long was like my only knowledge of that and you know Sailor Moon and stuff all the like morning cartoon stuff was my only knowledge of anime and then to go straight into Ghost in the Shell was a bit uh, a bit of a Ghost in the Shell shock uh, excuse the pun so it was yeah it was a a bit full on took me a while to to ease back into it but um I think uh, the next step was when I saw Spirited Away at the cinema. That was that, I think that was the first mm. first uh, Ghibli film in the cinema that I recall seeing, you know, knowing about that was going to be in the cinemas in Australia and going along to see that. And was was that a big big deal of a release at the time? Because so that was the first Ghibli film I saw at the cinema as well, and that had a proper national campaign here in the UK. You'd have national broadcasters doing reviews and broadsheets reviewing it. It was very much positioned as a proper release, not a cult or art house release. Was that that, that the case in Australia? Oh, uh, I don't recall it having as big a release. Hmm. I, I think there was still a lot of people who had no idea what it was or had seen it. So... I'm trying to remember which cinema I saw it in. I believe it was a uh, uh, cinema Nova in uh, Adelaide City Centre, which is mainly known for its art house films. So mm-hmm. I suspect, I mean, it would have been big enough that I'd heard about it. So, yeah, I think it was big. But yeah, strangely, it's interesting to me that it, it had such a big release over here in the UK when it feels like uh, Australia was potentially showing a lot of that stuff a lot earlier on on television. Mm. And and with those kind of formative viewings, so you're, you've got the early VHSs and then you're getting Totoro in school and then you've got Spirited Away at the cinema. Are those the films that the studio have made that have kind of lingered longest for you, uh, that you kind of cherish the most? Or did that kind of open up the doorway to other ones that you've discovered that maybe um, weren't, the, weren't obvious picks that you also kind of found a kinship with? Yeah, I would definitely say that those those three are my favourite. Noshka's my... I, I love... What I love about Noshka is every time you watch it, it's still relevant. Although maybe that's a bad thing. Maybe it's heartbreaking that it's still relevant. <laughs> uh, but I think for that one, for me, it's it's a, a it's such a well-told and timeless, beautiful story. So, I mean, that is always going to be really close in my heart and uh, and Laputa very much just because it, it sort of reminds me of of my childhood and, and Totoro. Uh, Spirited Away, I just think is, is stunning. I mean, it's just beautiful, isn't it? It's so, it invokes such feelings of, of when you're a kid and you find something that feels secret, the idea that you go through a tunnel and there's this, you know, an abandoned theme park is such a cool setting for something. And I just find, I love all the other ones, but I feel like I, none of them have quite hit me in the same way that any of those have. Mm. I found them either very quaint with not a huge amount of story. Um, 
but you know pleasant i would happily watch them again but they feel a bit more like saturday afternoon cup of tea bit hungover viewing <laughs> um <laughs> or so full-on that i i i can't rewatch them that much <laughs> Like every now and then I'm like, oh, maybe I should watch Grave of the Fireflies again. And I'm like, actually, I don't think I'm in a good enough place to watch that again. I don't think I'm mentally ready for that again. (laughs) Well, I mean, I can see why those ones will stick with you. I always find it so funny when um, people might pick Nauschka as as their favorite or the best one, because it's it's kind of like they're saying that Studio Ghibli started with that and then (laughs) From there, it was all downhill. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I think, no, I think definitely they've done really well with all of them. I think it's just, it's the same way that that I don't think there were any handsome films that really topped Labyrinth. Um, oh, that's another VHS we had, The Storyteller, which was a TV show, not uh-huh. not a film, but we had Jim Henson's Storyteller. Which, Jake, you are looking at me confused, which suggests that you haven't seen it. Big blind spot, Jim Henson. <gasps> I don't really know. So I feel like we're spoiling maybe what might be a suggestion later in the show. Uh, oh, our yeah. Our normal final question for this stuff. Um, but yeah, Jim Henson, I don't know much about at all. I'll, I'll be honest. I'm not actually, I don't know that much about the Muppets. But in terms of all the other stuff that Henson worked on. Uh, but story, oh, the storyteller. You have to, I think it's on Prime now or Netflix. It's on one of them now. And I was, I was, I think it's Prime. Um, It is just the first, I mean, there's like a Greek myths one, which is, which is good as well. But the first uh, series or is it two series? There's only about six episodes or something in it. And it's just, it's perfect. It's perfect. It's, it's beautiful. And there's a lot of actors where you're like, oh my gosh, that's, such and such famous person look how young they are you know uh loads of stuff like that there are a lot of them are are very similar to ghibli they're sort of based on uh you know a lot of european folklore um but they sort of sometimes mix them up a bit a lot of things that originally stem from Grimm's fairy tales and stuff like that they're in the process of rebooting it i think neil gaiman is uh is or his company is behind a new take on the storyteller which sounds quite fun interesting because um that landed at the time in that late 80s early 90s period where there was a lot of anthology tv shows because that's sort of like jim henson's version of amazing stories or something yeah um or tales from the unexpected and um i think we could do something like that now that'd be quite fun i'm surprised at this i uh because i'm writing a series of kids books at the moment called horror heights and I, I genuinely, uh, this is someone who has never written books in her life. And when I pitched it, I pitched it as a, as like an anthology, as a, as a collection of short stories, short, scary stories. And they, they said, oh, um, we, we don't really do, sh- no one does short stories. No, we don't hmm. do. And it tends to be something you only do if the author is so well known that people will then buy a collection of short stories. And, uh, yeah, they, they said, oh, people don't really, we don't really do that. And then they said, could you turn them into a series of, of short books? It's like, well, yeah, I mean, if you want to <laughs> pay me more to write them, sure, I'll stretch them out. <laughs> Which is just as well, because now that I am writing them, there is a lot of information in them, so... 
it's probably a good thing. But yeah, yeah, it's strange. Strange how there seems to be this. I don't know what happened in uh, in the entertainment industry for them to say, well, we don't really do anthologies or t-, you know. I mean, I guess the closest thing we've had is Black Mirror, isn't it? And Inside Number Nine. Mm-hmm. And you look at yeah. how successful yeah. they are. I don't understand why there aren't more shows like that. Yeah, really successful. I guess they're a bit more adult skewing, maybe. But it seems it feels like there's a broader family um, demographic that could be served by something like that. I think mm. that sounds really fun. Yeah. So regular listeners will know that my mic stand is, of course, the thousand pages of the Naushka manga, which begins with this beautiful map that Hayao Miyazaki drew, which isn't that it's, it's beautiful but it doesn't actually really help you with the lay of the land because it's almost like hyper detailed and a bit too much to take in um but beck with horror heights you've got you've got the map as well yes for the world uh, in which the books take place in and i wanted to just ask you about along with obviously we've got that nice nice map link which was the the segue i came up with to get us onto this um <laughs> But thinking about the way that you approach story and looking at Ghibli as well and thinking of, um, like how much that kind of attached to you when you were, when you were young, um, what is it that you might bring from Ghibli's work into the way that you work now, whether that's in your writing books or whether that's in comedy or anything else you might do? Oh, uh, I would definitely say that there is uh, an element of... Uh, autonomy with a um, with a child protagonist like definitely with with horror heights Um, I never like I never liked in kids books or TV shows or anything where you know the kids like never thought to just go to their parents (laughs) because I think a lot of kids would do that but at the same time uh, it's not fun if you you know it's not it's not giving a child enough autonomy to just have it and so i've i've been uh doing what i can to to explain why you know in certain stories and stuff kids can't go to an adult whether it's because they've they've done something wrong so in order to do that would mean admitting that they've they've made a mistake or maybe it's a parent who has made it clear that they don't believe anything the kid says or maybe, uh, you know, they're just um, too distracted to to fully understand what is being said to them. And just in frustration, the protagonist has to go away and fix it themselves. But I think it is something that is so rewarding to, to view in, in Ghibli stuff. There's something so... I mean, a lot of them get compared to sort of coming of age stories but I think in a way they are but without without the kids fully losing who they are and I just think that's really important I think a lot of people do tend to slowly lose that inner childness as they get older yeah I, I, and I think like I identity a sense of identity is something that runs through so many of the films and Kiki's delivery service is a great one for that where mm come the end of the film like emotionally she's in a bit of a gray area really she's recognized that going out into the world and being independent is great but that comes with kind of uh certain emotional pain and hardships that come with that and that's the point that it ends on Mm. which for 
uh, kids that might be watching it that's strange it's not you're not being told explicitly what to feel at that point you're not being told what the moral is there you can almost leave it up to interpreting interpretation and as you get older as viewers of that film or any of these ghibli films get older your relationship to them and what you you feel about them will change as well yeah yeah i couldn't put it better myself i think that's a really really strong take on it and uh yeah yeah, i have nothing to add to that that was beautifully well i think like when you said about and about naushka and how it's so present now and i think like the thing that a lot of viewers of naushka will be taking from now is the environmental message of it Mm. um which feels like yeah it absolutely could be commissioned now and people would say that it's a bit too heavy-handed you know um but it was it was powerful at the time it was being made um but if you're a kid watching that you're not maybe thinking about the environmental message of it you're thinking like this is an amazing fantasy adventure um but they are they're just so good at, yeah like look at how big those bugs are all... <laughs> <laughs> exactly but they are big bugs they're beautiful bugs as well <laughs> yeah, that, that leads into something i wanted to ask back which is you know most of the people we speak to but well particularly me and jake as well we came to these films as adults and of course, these films are made for kids and they're lauded and acclaimed as being such good movies for children. And you've worked with kids on the CITV show, Make Way, Take Away. You've, um, of course, written books for kids as well. And it's like, what, what insight can you give into writing or creating stuff or inspiring kids that maybe adults don't get sometimes? Yeah, well, I would, first of all, I would say that uh, I n- I've never seen... Ghibli films as for kids even though as a kid I I loved it uh I think I just always saw them as as for everyone and and that's why I was able to keep watching them as I got older and it's why as an adult you can watch them and take messages from them and subtleties that you you wouldn't have seen as a kid there's a lot of bureaucracy that happens in Norshika that is totally lost (laughs) on you so uh, my argument would be that if you were making it um with the sole intention of only being viewed by children, you wouldn't have any of that because that would be lost on them and it would just be a lot of there. And I, I feel like, I think Miyazaki does this, uh, and not, not to put myself on the same level in any way or form, but I think I have a, I've, I have a similar approach, which is to write for yourself and then, you know, make it as... Uh, as child friendly as possible without losing too much of the story and I mean that's what I've always I've always done when I work with the kids on make away takeaway you know none of them are are actors or anything they're they're kids who like arts and crafts and want to be on the show and a lot of the time they're really nervous when they arrive and and I just chat to them because you know I get nervous too and we just have a muck around and and uh they see me stuff up in front of the camera all the time and I'm like yeah look you're not going to be any worse than that like just go for it (laughs) they'll cut out anything that they don't like afterwards it's fine just do whatever you want so um yeah I think it's really important just to to not patronize to not try and guess what kids are into there's nothing more cringy than guessing and if you're not sure ask as well because kids love to tell you what they're into and more often than not it'll be something that you're either fully aware of or actually might find really interesting to learn about um but yeah yeah i would say that's yeah very much at least with the the horror heights books i very much 
try to write them so as if it's an adult audience reading and then just make sure there's no swears. <laughs> well, and I, well, I think we see with with the Ghibli films that we've mentioned and with Makeaway Takeaway and Horror Heights as well, there's a sense of wanting to be accessible with for that audience, but not to be patronising that audience as well. Yeah. And I think that's key to it. Um, and just moving kind of beyond the, the story elements of it and looking more at the craft, um, I think... like something that make way takeaway really emphasizes is like a real kind of tactility and interaction with art as well and for your for the kids that are on the show and for you as well you're a participant in it uh you are you're not just making it to frame it and let people look at it and dis and let it disappear the these artists whether they might be six-year-olds covering their hands in pva glue and slapping it against the wall um it's very much about kind of being engaged with it and i think that's something that we talk about time and time again about the Ghibli films as well is the investment in the artists and the artwork and being able to see the tactility of it and you can see the the line of the artist and you can see the animation it's it's very much championing the form of animation as much as it is telling those stories too oh absolutely the watercolored backdrops are just phenomenal phenomenal if I pronounce that correctly, <laughs> they are, um, I've, I, watercolor is one thing that I've not been able to quite, uh, quite work out how to do properly. I'm not, I don't have a subtle hand. Um, a lot of my stuff is very bold lines, bright colors and watercolor is so, so, uh, gentle and it can still deliver really fierce results but with so little and I have always loved that. I love the background in any, I could watch any Ghibli film and just stare at the backgrounds and I just think they're stunning. My um, grandmother is a, a watercolor artist and I, I have a painting of hers on my wall uh, here of this, um, of the view of where they used to live um, in, a, in a place called Normanville, which doesn't sound nice, but it is. And I, I mean, she painted that on the grand scale of things, not that long ago, but she's got severe arthritis and knowing that she's painted this beautiful scene with, with, uh, her hands, which are so sort of, um, stiff and, and in these awkward positions. And I, and I still can't, I can't get, and, and I've tried to copy her painting and, and work out how she's done certain things and, and get the, the shading and the light. I mean, it's that's the other thing I love about music. It's it's so much about the light, the way that light and shadow works. Some really nice cross hatching in in Laputa, as well, which again is such a strong knowledge of where light falls on something. I mean, the way that they do clouds with the cross hatching is uh, very reminiscent of you know uh, old sort of cartography um, or uh, litho lithio printing I think it's called that sort of style of things I just think it's um yeah I, I it I think it does a lot more than than your sort of standard animation sort of there's mm. all these different layers and different ways to enjoy it and and it, it feels very close to a dream I think it's the closest you mm. can get to a dream in that tactile sense yeah for me it's it really hits home how 
Miyazaki and Ghibli at large do see themselves more in the realm of somewhere like Aardman animation because they do foreground the act of creating art. They're not like Pixar where they're trying to sort of fool you into believing these toys are real toys, maybe ultra detailed, ultra realistic. They want to push something that will inspire you to look at the world differently or go and draw this thing yourself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I think definitely there's... uh... I'm not the only kid who sat down and tried to work out how to get the proportions of Totoro correct, which I still can't to this day. I've tried. If I try and draw it from memory, no, no, it's not happening. It's an angry tennis ball. We've we've drawn some terrible ones in our time. (laughs) And and now I I have a three-year-old who's asking me to draw a Totoro and a Ponyo almost every other day. Ponyo is very hard. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Well, it's not even... Because Ponyo's quite... There is, oh, and I can't remember the name of an artist, but there's a there's a Japanese artist who does these lovely uh, drawings of hamsters because uh, oh. hamsters, and Jake knows this, but I, I got a hamster during lockdown and, I'm, and now I can't believe no one is, they're amazing pets. They're incredible. I got, like, we just got him a really big home and it turns out that if you give a hamster a really big home rather than one of the cages you get in a pet shop, they're actually super, super tame. Like he mm. comes out when he hears, uh, well, he doesn't come out when he hears my voice. He comes out when he hears my husband's voice because he's cool dad. And so he like comes up to the glass. He wants to come out and play. He he toilet trained himself, you know, like it's it's really fascinating. But what the one, sorry, I'm getting off topic. My point is, is that <laughs> hamsters, uh, 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 this is what made me think of Ponyo is that they, they seem to have a shape. Like when you think of a hamster, you sort of think of like a little bean shape or a little just around, um, you know, there was a kid's animation called Hamtaro where there's just sort of like little balls. But if you see the way hamsters move in the strangest ways and there's, yeah, somewhere, I'll find it, I'll send it. You can stick a link in your show notes or something. But there's this, all these different positions of these of hamsters where they're doing stuff and they look like hamsters. Like you're like, oh yeah, that's a hamster, clearly. But if you look at the shape of it, you're like, I have no idea where to start. If you think about when you're trying to sketch out like the circles, you know, when you do a basic uh, animal or, or person or something, you know where the circles are and the ratios and everything. Hamsters, they can stretch. They can go really skinny. They can go all squashed. They can take on so many different positions and uh, physicality, physical traits in in an instant. It's very strange. It's very, very strange. It's like flubber. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think just, just thinking about all the different ways that a creature, a real life creature like a hamster can move and the, the challenges that would come in actually trying to capture that kind of makes me think more about how Ghibli are so good at doing their own character designs of a creature Mm. that doesn't exist like a Totoro, but then making that feel so real inside its world because of the way it might move, even though it doesn't exist at all. And they figured out where all those balls are in the lines and everything to build that character. And that is what, that must be why that you watch a film like spirited away full of all of these hideous and beautiful creatures that you could never have dreamed of. And suddenly, in that moment, they feel absolutely as real as a hamster. Oh, No Face is such a... I mean, the amount of times... In fact, like Pudding, which is my hamster's name, last night, um, Pudding went a bit hyper because we gave him a little piece of mozzarella and turns out he really likes that. 
got very excited and thought there might be more. And and he ran over that we had him on the bed, and he ran over a bunch of stuff in the same way that No Face does when he suddenly like wants more, <laughs> like you know when he's like eats all the food in the, in the sauna, and then he just goes and he like crawls off and. He, all these limbs poke out and stuff. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's become no face. But to, to know that this creature would move like that when they designed it, when it went from this sort of ghostly floaty thing into this sort of toad-like uh, hideous monster. Ah, yeah, exactly. I, I, I wouldn't even know where to start. Character design is, yeah. is amazing. You're hitting on something here that we do like to ask people, um, and it's to do with what was just said about how Ghibli's original fantastical creatures seem familiar in some ways, but otherworldly in others. And one is, um, how would you describe what Totoro is? Because everyone seems to have a different description. Is he a big bear? Is he an owl? No, 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 no. He's not a bear. He's not an owl. Uh, um, he is... He is a uh, um, a mitten. Ooh. He's a <laughs> giant mitten. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I no like one's come response. up with that before. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. think I think that one that's that's a good that, shout. You know those ones that like convert. If you take the like, it's a little the top. The mitten is a little hood. So if you take them off, you've got little fingerless glove underneath mm-hmm. like that's when he yawns that's what it's like when he yes yeah see that's a merchandising opportunity they've not yet exploited <laughs> but they could have the teeth on the inside of the yes or pockets. at least the yellow gums in your fingertips of the teeth or something <laughs> <laughs> or at least the tongue so thinking about um just the the focusing here on on character animation and just the the creations of these creatures and clearly the the landscapes and the backgrounds are something that you um kind of find yourself looking at a lot with these films do you think maybe it's it's less about the stories that they're telling and more about the environments they're creating that draw you back to them um i'll be honest i kept thinking about other things that look like Totoro as you said that and realised I hadn't taken in anything you said. Apologise. Did you come up with anything else uh, that he looks like? Yeah, kiwi fruit. Ooh, kiwi That's, fruit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, um, yeah. Uh, and, then I w- and then as I thought of kiwi fruit, I was like, oh, I wonder if, I'm sure there's, you know how people carve fruit to look like stuff. I was like, I bet there's someone on TikTok or Instagram who's already done that. He's turned a kiwi fruit into a totoro. And I was at that point when you finished your question and I realised you didn't listen to anything that Jake just said. <laughs> so rude. <laughs> That's all right. That's all right. We, we'll, we'll, we'll clean it all up. So we, we've just, we've no, just said, I want oh, them and to kiwi know the real fruit me. as well. I want them to... <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I was, I was saying about just the the details in the characters that we encounter in these films and the landscapes and backgrounds that we've already discussed as well. Do you think perhaps more so than the stories that the films are telling is the environments that they create is something that will keep drawing you back to them? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, and in all honesty, um, the, the Ghibli films that are, 
whenever they come out and it's not quite got that same level of uh, detail. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of some examples, but there were some sort of, I mean, I say recent, but we're talking like in the last two decades. But there, I there's a couple that I've watched where they didn't have that same sort of uh, background, you know, in terms of the, the watercolour background detail in there or, or the, those layers. And um, I, I found them a lot. I don't know, they were just missing, a, they were missing an element that made me want to invest 100% in them the same way that I do with others. So, yeah, I, I'd absolutely say it, it has a plays a big role. And I think a lot of that, the difference tends to be the ones where Miyazaki is involved directly or, or whether it's, a, um, you know, the studio. Mm-hmm. You, you, you mentioned that there's a Ghibli museum um, earlier on in the conversation. Did you ever make it out there for a pilgrimage? I haven't. No, I was in Tokyo very briefly for a week when I was uh, 18 or something. And I either it wasn't open or I didn't know about it at that Mm -hmm. stage. So uh, it is on the list. I've got several friends who have been. I I know that uh, that you have. (laughs) Um, So, uh, yeah. Would you recommend? We would absolutely recommend it, particularly all the stuff we're talking about. It's all about the backgrounds and the craft and everything. What was oh. on your Tokyo to-do list as an 18-year-old? Uh, <laughs> so I, when, I tra- when I went traveling, I, <laughs> I, I think I just thought I would go out and it would all fall into place. And I didn't realize how much <laughs> organizing is needed for traveling. So I saved up all my money, which I thought was the hard part. I worked at Pizza Hut, you know, since like when I was 15 after school, I was saving up all my money. I was like, I'm going to do this big trip and I'll go to Tokyo. And, and uh, I, I came over here. In fact, I went to the Edinburgh Fringe uh, as, as a punter. And um, I, I had all these things lined up. And I had a friend who was teaching, Jap- uh, teaching English uh, just in some town outside of Tokyo. You had to get there on the Shinkansen. And I remember landing in Tokyo and realizing that I had absolutely no idea. I didn't know how to get to the town. I didn't know where the Shinkansen train left from. I, I, I had absolutely no clue what I was doing. I'd booked a hostel in advance, uh, but that was meant to be after I'd come back from visiting my friend. And I, yeah, I just had absolutely no idea what I was doing. And the flight had been delayed. So by about sort of three or four hours. So we got in really late and a lot of the public transport, like I think the, I knew that there was a train from Tokyo to this town at a time and I definitely missed it. And whether I knew how to even get to the train station was another question. And I ended up, uh, there was a fella I'd started chatting to while I was waiting to go to the toilet on the plane. And, uh, I, he noticed that I had started crying because I was having the realization that I was in a completely different country and had absolutely no idea what I was doing. And, uh, he asked if I was all right. And, uh, he was going to be staying with his auntie who's from Melbourne originally. And she was working for Tupperware. Um, and she's quite high up. Into at Tupperware, as in like in the corporate office or whatever. 
And he said, I'm going to be staying with her. And uh, he said, oh, I'll, well, you can chat to my auntie and she might be able to help out. And so I was like, okay. So we came through the the customs part and uh, he brought me up and she was like, who's this? And he went, oh, um, it's back. She was on the plane. She's um, she's missed, missed the train to her friend's place and she doesn't really know what to do. <laughs> and she sort of looked me up and down and went, oh, i got to stray, have we? All right then. And then like paid for paid for uh we all got on a bus back into uh tokyo and uh, she paid for that she lived in um i think it was rapongi that she lived rapongi hills or something and uh uh it was she was like well it's too late to to get you anywhere now so i'm not letting you go out in the streets you're staying with me so I was, she's like you're gonna email your parents let them know that you're safe so <laughs> did all of that um so yeah, my, my trip in Tokyo, I didn't really do any, I didn't know what my list was going to be. And it ended up basically just going along for the ride. She took me around to see a lot of different temples and stuff. Her name was Rose. I wish I knew anything about, I've tried to find her since then to thank her because oh. it was incredible. And it turned out that the hostel that I had booked, I was around the corner from her flat. So uh, after a couple of nights, she took me around to the, to the hostel, helped me with my bags and spoke to the guy there and got me all checked in and and then I just followed any anyone who was in the hostel who was going to see stuff I just followed them around so yeah not 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 to bring everything back to Ghibli but I'm getting very strong Kiki's delivery service vibes here this is your oh, Osono the baker who helps abs- you out a hundred percent a hundred percent it was that all I was missing was like a little wise ass cat like <laughs> yeah yeah. Well, and normally in a Gib- normally in a Ghibli film, it's getting a train, which is the start of the adventure. But in this case, it was missing the train. That's uh, and true. You got a brand new adventure anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that must have been oh. a, wi- a wild summer because um, Tokyo is definitely not the sort of place to go to with no plan because it's just so overwhelming. <laughs> but then yeah. you, you turn up to Edinburgh during the Fringe, and once you're off the train, you've probably been swept into a disused toilet that's being used as a venue for the Fringe <laughs> or something <laughs> within five minutes. It's very yeah. easy to get too much stuff within five minutes of arriving at the Fringe. Yes, yeah. Yeah, luckily I did. I actually did have friends in uh, in Edinburgh who were doing the Fringe performing there. So that I just tagged along with them the whole time. So that I... Fortunately, I I was in slightly better stead there. Uh, still didn't had no idea what I was doing. Absolutely none. I mean, looking back on it today, I'm. It's amazing I'm alive. Well, well. Speaking of not having a plan, um, it's we should move on to our last question for all our guests because Michael and I we we have no plan as to what to do next because mm. we've covered all of Studio Ghibli's films. We've covered other filmmakers. I'm always looking for other people that we should be diving into the filmography of and championing and i feel like we've we've kind of set up maybe uh who a suggestion could be for this but beck where where do you think the podcast should be heading next yeah uh i mean obvious obviously we've we've mentioned jim henson so i think that would be a goer and i i would say watch all of jim henson's stuff that isn't muppets i think that would be a really interesting route to go down um so that's probably more of it that would actually I mean, that's just a solid, that's a solid podcast right there. Uh, I would also love to, maybe this isn't a podcast, maybe this is a YouTube series, but I would love to watch you guys eat all of the foods that feature in Ghibli films. I think that would be really fun. Because Ghibli's so good at food. 
Like any every Ghibli film I watch, I get so hungry because there's always some form of like feast or the street food or you know all this. Uh, they're so good at the the bubbling sounds and the steam. It's that like st- that bubbling in a big pot sound that sort of. Oh, stew well, there's sound. a there's a lovely bubble in Laputa, isn't there? When he, he's making a stew, yes, and yeah, and he's chopping into the big cauldron. Yes, yeah, yeah, oh. yeah. Yeah, I always like it's so visceral that that oh, mm, it feels warm and and hearty. So I would like to, I'd like to maybe it's just a cooking show. I want to see you guys do a, a Ghibli cooking show. I'd like to watch that. Um, a, 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 I would love to make that. <laughs> a Dibliotech, uh, Dibliotech. Is it Dwayne Dibley? Yeah, Dibliotech. I want you to do Dibliotech, which is just about Dwayne Dibley from Red Dwarf, which is such a niche reference, but it rhymes. So uh, do that, please. Cat's alter ego. So ju- just watching the two episodes with Dwayne Dibley in the yeah. Red Dwarf yeah. <laughs> over I'm, and over. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's a it's short series. Fun. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I like this. So J- Jim Henson, a food YouTube channel and a two episode Red Dwarf miniseries. Yeah. I think yeah. these are some solid suggestions. <laughs> Good. I'm glad I could help. I'll take commission. Oh. Beck, it's been so lovely having you inside the Ghibli Tech. Um, but if people want to be finding Makeaway Takeaway and more Beck Hill antics, where can they be doing so? Ah, well, um, season one of Makeaway Takeaway is still on the ITV hub, I believe. Um, I, think it ca- I think it still shows on CITV and ITV. Sometimes you'll catch it early in the morning on ITV on a Saturday or something when you're hungover because I'll get a bunch of new follows on Instagram from clearly people who go out clubbing. <laughs> and I'll think, oh, okay, you've just woken up to that. Um, so, I'm, yeah. I'm looking forward to hearing about like wasted people coming in at 9am, st- <laughs> having not slept and just covering themselves in, the in d- paint and sending you DMs saying, I'm so proud of this. Yeah, 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 that's right. <laughs> just like little pencil sharpeners they've made with paper mache and stuff. Um, uh, yeah, so you can get, you can watch that there. Um, the second Horror Heights book, uh, now live screaming comes out on the 28th of April. So that might be in the past, depending on when you listen to this. Um, uh, that is about a kid who wants to be a live streamer, uh, or a streamer and, uh, they end up trapped in the studio and body of their favorite streamer. And um, they have to find out why and how to escape. Um, yeah, it gets pretty, uh, pretty sci-fi. The the way that my publishers are describing it is Black Mirror for children. So that's fun. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, Problem Squared is the podcast I do with mathematician Matt Parker, which is uh, if you if you like maths, you can listen for Matt, and if you have no idea what maths is, you can listen for me trying to understand what Matt is saying (laughs) excellent well we will drop links for all of those in the show notes for this episode and Beck thank you again for joining us it's been an absolute pleasure oh thanks for having me I'm going to uh, take these roller skates off now
thank you so much to Beck for coming on the Jubilee Tech and, and dressing in such a fabulous manner for it as well. Uh, what a treat to have her on the show. Uh, and yes, make sure you check out Now Live Screaming, uh, available in bookshops this week. It's, it's rare that our schedule actually lines up with stuff, isn't it? It was genuinely unplanned as well. That's some, some wonderful, uh, yeah, wonderful coincidence. Also, follow Beck on Instagram, Twitter, etc. She is Beck Hill Comedian on those platforms. Also, a very quick apostrophe for me, the Nerd Police. I uh, realised that I said that there were only two Dwayne Dibley episodes of Red Dwarf. I think there are more. If you go later and later in the series, series eight onwards, I'm afraid I dropped off Red Dwarf when they came back. So I'm sorry, I got it wrong. Please <laughs> complain at the usual channels. <laughs> well those channels are at Ghibliotech on Twitter and Ghibliotech.pod but do clarify that your complaint is directed explicitly towards Michael and no one else um, but if you want to hear more from Ghibliotech uh, in between this season and our next season um, you can hear from us on our Patreon and our Library Cafe bonus episodes which is where we do conversations about Stuff that isn't related to Ghibli, because um, occasionally there are bits of pop culture that aren't related to Ghibli or that we can't force into relating to Ghibli. Um, and that's where we have those chats. So we've just recorded one this week about our experiences going back to live music, which was a lot of fun. And uh, there's lots of good stuff in there. Conversations about Turning Red and the Batman. Conversations about what we think about the, the current state of film sequels. Uh, so go and fill your boots over at patreon.com slash ghibliotech and if you'd like to see us in person we do have a live event coming up anyone in the northwest of england anyone within shouting distance of manchester we're coming to home i mean it's literally my home uh, as well but we're coming to home uh, where the manchester animation festival are hosting us for one evening to do our z to a of studio ghibli live show where we have all of our hot takes and insights and in jokes that we've learned about ghibli over the years we'll also be taking up with us a big pile of the ghibli attack book um so we, you can buy copies there you can have them signed you could always ask us to to, to doodle Totoro in there and we could do some terrible Totoros and <laughs> really graffiti you know, your book um, but, or if you want to argue with us or just have a chat with us we'll be there on the 18th of May and if you want to keep up with all of us individually uh, you can follow Steph at underscore Steph Watts you can follow Michael at Michael J Leader and you can follow Jake at Jake H Cunningham Ghibliotech is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Harold McShill and Steph Watts. Our music is by Anthony Ng. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 